This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. David Willits, President of the Foundation, and we are delighted to be hosting this event for the Society of Professional Economists. It is uh, particularly, if I may say so, I'm delighted that in a way it's for, with a parliamentary colleague of mine, uh, Jesse Norman, because I think his book is absolutely fantastic and full of insights, as we would expect, and for us at Resolution Foundation, committed to the better understanding of economics and economic policy, working hard as we are at the moment on our Economy 2030 inquiry, this is just a reminder of the big, deep issues that lie behind everything that we do day to day. So thank you very much, Jesse, for this opportunity to celebrate your book and hear about your thinking. We'll begin by hearing from Amanda, Amanda Rola, who I remember as one of our uh, senior economic advisors in Bayes a few years ago. And Amanda, it's also great to be working with you. Over to you. Um, uh, Jesse is actually my minister, um, and it's uh, at the Department of Transport at the moment, which is wonderful. So you have to say nicely. Well, this, this could be my public opportunity <laughs> to, uh, to respond. Right. He has a wonderfully diverse background. First degree in classics, a good founding for anything. He's run a charity in Eastern Europe. He's been a director of Barclays Bank, working there for six years. He has been a research fellow in philosophy at uh, University College, a senior fellow at the Policy Exchange, on the board of various charities. And then he became a Conservative MP, where he's worked on culture, media and sport, uh, industry and energy, treasury during COVID, a challenging job if there was anyone, and then um, working at the Department for Transport on two occasions. But he has also found the time somehow to write lots of books, um, most recently a historical novel, in, but including this book on Adam Smith. As my minister, he has an unbounded enthusiasm for data, for artificial intelligence, and a huge capacity to hoover up information, reflect on it, and come back with insightful thoughts. Indeed, just a couple of weeks ago, we sent him 30 dense technical pages on um, future uses of data, and he wrote back saying, this is a great piece of work. So <laughs> in that light, he has seized the background of Adam Smith with similar enthusiasm. You would not think, reading it, that he was not a, his, his, an economist, I would say. It's a great piece of work, and we look forward to hearing about it. Gosh, well, thank you very much indeed, Amanda, and what an absolutely magnificent and unbelievably generous uh, introduction that is. Ladies and gentlemen, you should understand that Amanda's not just um, the kind of chief economist at uh, DFT. Uh, she's also a fellow band member of mine in the um, DFT Data Analysis Jazz Band, where she plays the trombone. So if we're talking about hinterlands, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Ukraine of um, Amanda Rolat. Um, thank you all so much for coming along today. And thanks so much to you, David, and to the Resolution uh, Foundation, and also, of course, to the Society of Professional Economists. Uh, as Amanda very gently 
hinted, I need to start with a disclaimer, which is I'm not an economist. Anyone who actually knows something about economics will very quickly discover that I'm not an economist. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what I am, really. Um, I've, I've done a bit of philosophy, I've done a bit of history, and uh, I've tried to think about the, the foundations of economics. And uh, it, that turns out to be quite a good training, in a funny way, for thinking about Adam Smith, uh, who, you know, possibly more than anyone, is a kind of canonical thinker of, of the Enlightenment across an enormously wide range of subjects. And one of the things I want to persuade you of uh, is that his thought, which can appear so diverse and so, uh, uh, in some senses, disaggregated, and which has itself given rise to the idea that there wasn't just one Smith, there were two Smiths, the Smith of the theory of moral sentiments and the Smith of the wealth of nations. I want to persuade you that actually he's one extraordinarily thoughtful, single, as it were, engine intellect thinking about a whole variety of different subjects. Uh, I've got 15 minutes to do it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the life, but if I may, in a spirit of relentless self-pluggery, um, mention it. Um, my book is actually <laughs> Book of the Week, on Radio 4 this week. Um, and therefore, anyone, um, and therefore uh, anyone wanting to bone up on some of the details of Smith's life can very uh, inexpensively, uh, in fact, for nil cost and a little bit of time, uh, get it beautifully read by Robin Lang in a kind of splendid uh, lowland Scotch burr. So uh, I, I recommend that to you very much. Uh, now, Smith. I will just spend a second on his life. As you know, he was born in 1723, died in 1790, and therefore his life uh, spans an extraordinary, most of an extraordinary century, and including the Seven Years' War, this extraordinary thing called the Scottish Enlightenment, if we can see that enlightenment is a word that we can apply at all, uh, at the American Revolution, and of course then the French Revolution. And he has things to say about all of those in different ways, and fascinatingly so. So it's an extraordinary period, as well as an extraordinary time. And to, to make your name, as he did, as a professional academic, almost um, unprecedentedly, and to do so in an enlightenment like the Scottish one, which was a very academically based enlightenment, is itself a, a topic of no small uh, interest. Uh, he was born in Kirkcaldy, he went to a local borough school, he then went to Glasgow University, he had a marvellous time, uh, taught by the legendary Francis Hutchison, uh, and then goes as a Snell scholar to Balliol College, Oxford, which I'm sorry to tell you um, was not the powerhouse uh, uh, then that it is now. Indeed, it was a, a kind of temple of high Toryism and uh, anti-Scotch uh, anti feeling with a great distaste for people without much money. And since Smith was quite poor um, uh, and uh, low church and Scottish, this didn't make for a perfect arrangement. And there's a story that, as it were, uh, he came down having been uh, discovered in the uh, potentially revolutionary act of reading David Hume's treatise on human nature. And the relationship that Smith then forms with Hume is, although actually they didn't spend an enormous amount of time together, a founding intellectual relationship for him across a very wide range of, of areas, as I'll just touch on. So an incredible time, incredible colleagues, uh, and an incredible human being. Now, as an economist, uh, Smith, just to remind ourselves, if, if we think of the 
uh, the, the landscape of economics in a geographical sense, according to citations, uh, then uh, it's rather like the geography of Sicily. That is to say, you go along, you bump along perfectly happily, you hit the Madonia Mountains um, and you're with people like Hayek and uh, Keynes and Marx, and then you come up against Etna, this gigantic beast um, in front of you of a mountain. And that is, broadly speaking, the relationship that Smith's citation indices bear to anyone else in the field. And of course, this gives him a kind of monumental quality and makes it somehow hard to see past him. It also means that um, he's someone who's endlessly being prayed in aid of every kind of half-brained, you know, um, hair-brained, half-assed idea in economics. So I was going to be a little bit careful about this stuff. Um, and yet I think I'd, I'd like to suggest that there is a kind of core of thought that one can uh, detect in there. And what I'm going to do is talk about that and then locate it specifically for the Society of Professional Economists within a more kind of specifically economic context. So, uh, you know, is Adam Smith the apostle of free trade? Yes. Is he a devout believer in something that predates the efficient market hypothesis? No, absolutely not. Is he a, quote, market fundamentalist? Absolutely not. Is he a laissez-faire economist? N I would say not. Uh, what he is, of course, you can dig yourself into the book and enjoy. Um, but the thing that I want to draw your attention to is that we have these two great works, Theory of Moral Sentiments and The Wealth of Nations, but we also have other works which are, are in existence by luck and happenstance and which also give clues to his knowledge. So we have his very early uh, uh, lectures on um, uh, Belles Lettres and then we have his uh, recovered lectures on jurisprudence which exist in the form of three sets of lecture notes which just astounding good luck taken by students have appeared uh, in bookshops uh, over the last couple of hundred years and been rescued and then rehabilitated and brilliantly edited in the Glasgow edition. And, and what they show is that uh, not only is it wrong to think of Smith as two Smiths, a Smith of the moral sentiments, as it might be thought a Smith of uh, empathy, uh, hu human feeling, pity uh, on the one hand, and then a smith of a kind of flinty economic self-interest on the other. Not only is, there, is that the wrong view, for reasons we'll come to, but we also need an account of what Smith does that uh, spans his interest in language, uh, his interest in, uh, and his interest in what he called police, or what we would call uh, government. Uh, the theory of government. What is he doing when he thinks about all these topics? And I, I, th I suggest in the book that what he's doing is picking out this kind of notable and widely noted Enlightenment project that is, which is scouted in, in Hume, the beginning of Hume's treatise, which is the idea that there could be such a thing as a science of man. There could be something which lays down from a small number of basic principles a set of ideas that massively ramify across the whole spectrum of human activity. That is to say, something in the social sciences defined, uh, we think of them as the word social science now, of course that's not what science means in the 18th century. Science is just a body of knowledge, uh, 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 the idea of organized knowledge itself. But the idea that those social sciences could be a, a, a kind of, in some sense, a ramified explanation of human behavior that could account at the human level for what we saw, uh, what we can see, in a way uh, analogous and directly inspired by 
what Sir Isaac Newton did with the uh, Principia Mathematica. And you'll recall the genius of the Principia Mathematica is it takes a, a body of thought and it, Bowman's answered if you like. <laughs> so that's a tease, I'm sorry. Um, but the, uh, it, takes a, it takes a body of thought um, and it, it basically lays down uh, a few simple principles uh, 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 about motion and then from those and some maths, some actually bizarrely rather Euclidean maths, um, you get uh, the ability to predict the location of every large object in the universe at any point in time, present, future or past. It's astounding intellectual achievement. So something to rank with that is the ambition that's being scouted in Hume's treatise and I, and I would argue picked up by Adam Smith. It's quite noticeable that Smith, when he's working towards the end of his life, he works on the perfection of the two books rather than on the other works in between because he thinks he's made two very big moves in, in each of those and he wants to take them to the, the highest, almost as it were, Newtonian level of perfection he can. Um, now, what is the single idea that unites those. Uh, it is the idea of exchange. Now, we think of the idea of exchange in the context of the free exchange of goods and services in markets because anyone with an economics training, that's the natural way to come to it. But the brilliance of the theory of moral sentiments is that it provides an extraordinarily subtle and, plausi and plausible idea as an exercise in not in moral philosophy but in moral psychology as to how exchange could operate in between human beings through the exchange of moral regard or esteem. And that, that moderated by the idea of an impartial spectator, the capacity of ourselves to imagine that we are being watched by others and to step back from our, the idiosyncrasies of our own moral situation, that then becomes a way in which we can identify um, human behavior that is recognizably somehow in a space of reasons that we uh, uh, can ourse locate ourselves in and out of which we can start to imagine what norms would look like if they were shared. And therefore, what Smith's giving us, astoundingly, given the period, is not an inside-out theory of moral development that might come from reading uh, a religious text or a sense of divine inspiration, but an outside-in theory of moral development in which we get our morals through the interaction we have with other people. And in due course, those morals move from the personal to the social and therefore become social norms. So that sense of exchange is the linking idea that ties both of those two things together. And it's fascinating then, and, and I try to explore the extent to which Smith thinks of exchange as also underlying our exchange of language uh, as it were, the, the process by which we uh, refine and improve the, uh, uh, our modes of communication, our conceptual repertoires as a result, uh, and also um, uh, 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 ways in which, uh, uh, as it were, the, the legal rules underlying government might somehow be formed uh, from, from this kind of general framework. And you can see ways in which uh, if we wanted to, and if we were sufficiently bold, we might try to extend some of those ideas given some of the ways we think about democracy as a theory of error correction um, uh, itself. So those ideas, even if we don't necessarily think Smith took them as far as he could have done, nevertheless are staggeringly exciting in terms of the kind of uh, intellectual fertility they offer us for the things we can do. Now let's just think a little bit about economics today. 
Um, and I want to I want to read to you a, a sentence relatively early on, a phrase very relatively early on from The Wealth of Nations, because it kind of captures some of this stuff. Smith says, nobody ever saw a dog make a fair and deliberate exchange of one bone for another with another dog. Nobody ever saw one animal by its gestures and natural cries signify to another, this is mine, that yours, I'm willing to give this for that. So what he's saying something that's He's identifying something that's unusual about the way in which human exchange, human interaction works. And it is, I would suggest to you, that human exchange, distinctive, what is distinctive about human exchange is that it presupposes a context of imagination, of moral and social norms, of trust, of interaction, and of uncertainty. Now, it is extraordinary, and, and I'm going to sort of flop this out there, and you can agree or disagree, but it is extremely interesting to me how little progress... Uh, or little resolution, I'm not going to say little progress, that's not true, but little resolution, economics has, got, has brought in its own philosophical self-consideration to topics of preference formation, aggregation, agency, distributional effects, you know, individual imagination and choice, interaction. I don't know if you would agree with this. It's quite interesting that what Smith is actually doing is touching on a whole series of areas which are arguably more philosophical than economic and which economists can perfectly properly ignore in some sense, in some Friedmanian sense, provided the rules, as it were, the models continue to work, but where there is still a worry that actually something quite profound is happening, something absolutely distinct about human activity is happening, which isn't really, in some sense, being adequately explored beneath the models. So... Uh, Let's just talk a little bit then, and I need to stop talking in a second because I want to take your questions, but let me just say um, a couple of things about the wealth of nations because it's obviously, the, in a way, the, the founding text of modern political economy. So why is it? Well, I think it is because there, were plenty, there have been plenty of other works, as you will know, um, from the uh, 18th century that could be classified as falling into uh, the area of political economy. You know, one thinks of Stuart or Tucker or Cantillon or, or many others. But what makes the wealth of nations so distinctive uh, is, is not just these extraordinarily persuasive ideas that have lingered with us, the division of labor, the idea of market equilibrium, the uh, notion of effects of incentives on behavior, free trade, the four maxims of taxation. It's because Smith is the first person to put markets at the center of economics itself. And in that sense, I want to suggest, I think, is the hinge of our economic modernity. Burke puts a theory of representative government at the theory, at the center of his politics and political parties. And Smith, uh, uh, in a parallel way, is the hinge of our economic modernity by putting markets at the center of political economy. That's the first thing. Second thing is, markets are, for Smith, I think, are very different to those of some of the ways we find in economics today. So they're not, uh, they're not to be thought of uh, purely as uh, mathematical constructs, disembodied. Uh, we're not talking about individuals. The idea of the individual as an atom cut off from others is, is not a conceivable idea within Smith's political economy because it is a norms and trust-based view of the world. Um, markets, rather, are living institutions embedded in specific cultures mediated by social norms and trust. They are shaped by their participants in a dynamic and evolving way. They have common features, but they are as different from one another as individual humans are. So markets for land and labor and capital, asset markets and product markets, um, and all the innumerable rest of them. 
Uh, yes, they generate economic value and are unmatched as a means of allocating goods and services. But what really matters is not the largely empty rhetoric of free markets, I would suggest, in the Smithian spirit today, but the reality of effective competition. We think about effective competition. And, and, and that uh, uh, means, I mean, Smith gives a whole series of uh, ways of thinking about w the kinds of aspects of that, uh, uh, which I think are bear reconsideration and find astonishing modern uh, parallels. Uh, and together, they, and I'll come to them, but together they suggest that this idea of market failure, uh, which derives from models which assume perfect competition, needs to be expanded and supplemented by asking a much simpler question. What, you know, what is the purpose? What is this market actually for? Uh, and, uh, first, and then finally, I would say, markets, of course, are not and should not be considered, and are not, con are not considered by, by uh, Smith as, in any sense, um, you know, independent themselves of the state. They themselves are embedded in, in contexts of trust and law. Now, if we're thinking about the reality of competition, effective competition, what are the kinds of things now that have antecedents in Smith's own thought? Well, one of them is crony capitalism, the idea of rent extraction. Another is the idea of ownership properly exercised and uh, the principal agent problem, as we would now think of it. Uh, a third is what you might call asymmetries of information and power. Um, and now from that, we can then move to other aspects of Smith's thought, which I think bear directly on economics, but which we don't often think of as economic. So uh, the impact of materialism, or what Smith thinks of as an obsession with trinkets of frivolous utility, as he calls them, celebrity culture, um, the servility that inclines us to adore our superiors and trample underfoot our inferiors. So those are things that are debasements Materialism is the debasement of uh, a social formation of norms sitting within markets that have somehow failed to operate properly. Virtue signaling, the feigned exchange of moral regard. Uh, and the ancient danger, perhaps something we see more now in the context of Ukraine, the ancient danger of societies being softened by wealth and luxury and the importance of maintaining and respecting martial vigor. These are just a few things you find in Smith. I've hardly got going. Um, let me just end with a final provocation. When Russia launched its illegal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, what was the response? It was condemned by the UN, uh, by, the, by resolution signed by 141 nations. Uh, the UK, the US, the EU, and many other nations put in a raft of economic sanctions. International companies and iconic consumer brands disinvested. Organizations judging, judged to be abetting the Russian war effort were preventing from getting the goods and services they needed. Russian banks were denied access to SWIFT, oligarchs and other persons of interest were designated for travel bans, asset freezes and denied credit. Yachts were impounded, football clubs were sold. In other words, alongside military support for Ukraine, alongside economic measures of support, the world's leading commercial societies, and I think commercial society is the right way to think about this, not capitalism, which is a 19th century idea, but a Smithian idea of commercial society unites the social, the moral, and the economic. Those commercial societies, the world's leading commercial societies, immediately turned their back on Putin and his cronies. And they did so not just economically, but morally and socially. No more Smithian response could be imagined. Let us hope that they and we can continue to do so. Thank you very much.
you very much indeed. Um, and your final comment serves to bring your book up to date by reflecting on Smith's, uh, Smith's views um, on the uh, most recent developments. We now have the opportunity for a conversation, which is excellent. Um, we have us in the room, uh, great to see it so full, but also people online who have the opportunity to ask questions through Slido, and I'll ask uh, some, put some of those to Jesse. Sure. But let's start within the room. Uh, who would like to ask, pose some questions? You, you issued a challenge to economists, things we may not be considering enough, at the same time as reflecting broadly on the linkages between the moral aspects of, of Smith's work and the more economics, as we would say today. Can I invite some questions? Please, could you give uh, your name and uh, organisation if you have one? In a public first consultancy. Uh, you're right that commercial society has pulled out of Russia, and I'm sure as much as I know of Smith, he would have approved of that. What else do you think Smith would be surprised that commercial society has not pulled out of in this day and age? <laughs> uh, yes, this is the general response one has from a Tim Loney question, which is to say, thank you so much, I really appreciate your insight, and then move very swiftly on to the next uh, topic. Um, no, so um, a very good question. So let's, if we go back to the end of the 18th century, there is a deep worry that, that we have lost, which is that commercial society, the so-called what Hume calls jealousy of trade, the idea that trade has somehow become the principal focus of public policy over and above warfare, uh, that, that that is by no means the unmitigated good that one might think if one was a naive Smithian, if you like. And in particular, that it lures countries into um, aggression and debt. And uh, I think uh, that, that we do need to think very hard about all the aspects of commercial society that we've picked on. Now, those are two big worries about the, the kind of macro-political economy. But there are also worries which have to do with uh, some of the things I touched on. Um, you know, is it, you know, we are now discovering that, you know, perhaps we didn't strike the right balance as a nation in terms of over the last 30 or 40 years in terms of our support for defense and military spending. We're discovering that we may not have got it quite right in terms of the way in which we collectively have allowed social media and the sentimentalization created by social media to overwhelm democratic processes, notably in the extreme difficulty of cutting public spending, or at least even restraining public spending, and the power of minority uh, voices. So I think there's a very wide range of areas where one could go through and apply a kind of Smithian scalpel to ask ourselves the question, not, not as it were, were better things were things better then than now, but have we, in some sense, lost our sense of poise about where we've got to as a society? Interesting. Thank you. Um, would you like to ask a question? Yeah. Hi, Salko Kadic, Department for Transport. I'm, I'm not a plant, I promise. <laughs> um, Hello, very lovely to see you. Um, for the first time. Yes, no, no. <laughs> um, so. 
Adam Smith was quite scathing of what we now call our service-based economy and, and, and things like that. Do, do you think that Smith was, was naive or of his time for that, or have we got ourselves into a hole through a sort of relentless pursuit of GDP and an obsession with GDP as a, as a figure? Uh, it's a great question. Um, th there is... There, there are readings of Smith that make him look as though he's hostile to services, and um, that's, uh, that may not be untrue. I mean, he, he, what is interesting is that The Wealth of Nations is being written right at the time when Britain um, has already begun a process of becoming quite service-oriented. You know, the luxury of the 18th century has led to the expansion of an awful lot of that kind of activity. Um, and it's about to go into a massive acceleration that comes from the Industrial Revolution. Now, there were actually industrial enterprises at the time that could have been part of a manufacturing theory within Smith. But he doesn't really seem to have a theory either of manufacturing or indeed of services. Um, so the Caron Artworks, uh, uh, Ironworks, which made the Caronade cannons, um, was an example of that. And uh, others did notice this. Uh, so I think, and, and as with, there are many areas, and we should just touch on this for a second, there are areas for Smith where, where, where he really doesn't say very much, even though you know, technology change, for example, is you know, completely foundational to think about economics now, which of which he's relatively little to say, if any. So I don't mean to say that you can't extract a Smithian view of these things, but there are gaps in what he's doing. I, I have a degree of sympathy with um, a Smithian view. So let me try a somewhat countercultural um, or, or possibly provocative defense. I think we are discovering, kind of by accident, that there are social as well as economic benefits to manufacturing, which a purely uh, uh, as it were, mathematical understanding of the economic effects might not have, have, have characterized. Um, if you asked me, you know, w w you know, might we have done better to have um, it struck a different balance between globalization and deindustrialization over, over 50 or 100 years? I think the answer to that might easily, have be, might easily be yes. And uh, you know, we might, we might find that we had a more balanced economy and less financialized economy, for example, if we had done so. That's a provocation. Another provocation. Um, could I invite some responses from anyone here or some further questions? Yes, here. Hello, I'm, I'm Troy. I do not have an organization. Yet. Hello. Um, nice to meet you. I was just wondering, because you were talking about the importance of not just necessarily a free market, but competition, I was wondering how would Adam Smith, say, respond to possible, to the rise of possible monopolies and natural monopolies? What would he say about those? Would he even believe that there are natural monopolies? Um, th thank you very much. So, so as you know, S Smith's worries about competition are famously summarised. I mean, there are many different worries, but one of the most famous ones is that you know, people, you know, producers never get together, but essentially it becomes a conspiracy to raise prices. So he's extremely sceptical about allowing concentrations of market power if one can avoid it. And of course, there's a very live argument at the moment, particularly in technology areas, as to whether, as it were, certain kinds of monopoly are 
tolerable because the economic benefits appear to be so extremely large and therefore you're trading off, uh, as it were, a, 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 a traditionally economically unattractive outcome. You know, the, the, the world's um, dominant technology X provider, if you like, versus um, what you might call a more free market approach. Now, does that mean that, that there are no alternatives available? I don't think it does. I mean, for example, one of the things I explore in the book is the idea that of whether uh, uh, legislation might not enable means by which you could get algorithmic, i.e. that is to say robot consumers, to aggregate preferences and to act as kind of avatars on behalf of groups of consumers in order to sort of level the economic base uh, between, between uh, the economic relationship between the, the quote-unquote monopolist and the and the, uh, the non-monopolist. But at the moment, it looks like we're getting uh, uh, industrial players in, in many of these areas who are able to derive enormous economic value from massive aggregation of very small decisions which have collective value, but which individually are priced at, at as it were, nothing to the individual. And I think that's, 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 that, that does raise uh, questions which, which I think we should. As you know, we have a digital markets unit now in the Competition Markets Authority, which is looking at what the right balance is to be struck with these things. Quite interesting that if you look at uh, final markups in, 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 in product markets, they seem to have gone up a lot in the last 15 or 20 years in America and in the UK. So I don't want to suggest for a second it's just a technology issue, but it's the, the whole question of how we, how we really think about competition effectively and what what, what, you know, what we should do to take, what, what resolute steps we should take and can take in a legal environment in which these players are extremely capable of defending themselves um, is, I think, a, is, a, is a very live question now. Thank you. Shall we take a couple from slides? We've also got a, a lady in the front here. Why don't we take Ooh, a, sorry. a yes, double X question? Thank you, ma'am. Hold up a second, madam. We've got a... Thank you very much. Um, why do you think that Adam Smith disagreed with lesser fair economics? I would have thought that um, he was for the uh, British Empire's um, um, colon uh, decolonization, wasn't he? You've got you're running two or three different things there together. Let's just let's unpick them a little bit, if we could. So so is so so in the late changes that Smith makes to the wealth of nations. The, the quite strong anti-colonialist narrative that he's got going in the first edition is significantly uh, expanded into a swinging critique of the East India Company and the kind of trading companies of, of uh, uh, you know, Britain and the, uh, the Dutch and, and uh, France and others. And so uh, he's, go he's got to that extent, and, and of course he was a resolute, as Burke was, a resolute opponent of slavery. So, so Smith is hostile to slavery in the 1750s. Just think about that. Smith is hostile to slavery. So Clarkson and Wilberforce don't get going until the late 1780s. So 30 years beforehand, Smith is all over this issue. And, and he opposes it not just on moral grounds, but on economic grounds. And he might be right, might be wrong. There's a live argument in the academic world of whether he's right on the economics of slavery. But there's no doubt that he's hostile to it. So he's running a significant institutional critique of colonialism and he's writing uh, and, and, and the trading uh, companies and he's running a, a moral economic critique of slavery. Um, and 
but, but then there's the further question of, of whether he, in some sense, is a laissez-faire economist. Well, you might say, well, if he's laissez-faire, he's not really laissez-faire much, but slavery. And actually, when you look closely at it, there's a very large number of areas where Smith is prepared to tolerate not just the, the encapsulating role of the state as a setter of law and arbitrator of disputes, but a much more trenchant involvement. And sometimes this goes the wrong way, it goes, goes the other way. So, so Smith defends, the infamously defends the Navigation Act, probably the single biggest uh, uh, security slash economic intervention of the, of the 18th century on, on security grounds. Now, of course, the evil irony of this is that Navigation Act, one of the things they did was to preserve the sugar trade with the West Indies, as they were then called. And that trade was itself the economic engine behind the slave trade in those areas. Of course, there's a much larger slave trade, which everyone forgets, in, in Brazil and places like that. But I mean, so there you've got, uh, 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 but if you look at other, just very quickly, other interventions, you've got the Navigation Acts, You've got uh, interventions in, in, in some cases in minimum setting minimum interest rates. You've got interventions after the collapse of the Air Bank in 1772. He's keen on the idea of, of, of a degree of, of, of firewalls to prevent a general conflagration in the banking sector. His patron, the Duke of Buccleuch, nearly got taken down by that because they had unlimited liability ownership in the bank. So there are a lot, there are actually listen, there are lots of different areas in which Smith is prepared to derogate from what you might call a laissez-faire view. And there were laissez-faire economists of the time, uh, up to a point. Um, Cunet and the physiocrats tried to claim a degree of that in some respects. And Smith is quite critical of them. So, so I, I don't think there's much doubt on that. It's a, it's a, modern, it's a modern fiction that he's a laissez-faire economist. <laughs> which, is, which isn't to say he's not in favor of free markets. In, 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 in many contexts. That's a good question, which draws out some interesting responses. Yeah. I know we've got one or two more in the floor, but I think it's fair, sure. to, go to, yeah. um, fair to go to Slido. Um, and the first question I'm highlighting, which will appear soon, is essentially, I think, saying um, capitalisation is the main reason we're Capitalism, facing yeah. climate change. And what would Adam Smith Think of this. So, capitalism, all its individuals agreed, unlimited is the main reason we're facing the sixth extension today. Would Adam Smith turn over his grave with the way things have developed? Similar to think our way. Um, I, 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 I mean, the, the, the strength and weakness of, of a lot of Smith's thinking is that if one, one has to think of it in terms of the reaction of, you know, uh, uh, a, 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 a professional intellectual man um, living in Edinburgh in the 1780s, I mean, you know, uh, uh, so we're miles away from that view of the world. And his, his moral instincts would, I'm sure, rev be revolted by many of the things that he sees today. Um, and there are strong critiques of the way in which environmental policy uh, has been conducted from a Smithian perspective. I mean, after all, an awful lot of of pollution comes from the failure to price externalities adequately, which itself is a source, actually a source of market failure. So we should, um, although it's not conventionally thought of quite in that way, and so we should, we, we, you know, there is a, a very strong latent Smithian critique of the way in which markets have been allowed to develop. Um, uh, uh, now, uh, it, uh, I, I, th I don't think there was anything uh, I don't think it was, we don't know whether it is a necessary fact that some form of capitalism would have yielded the results that it has here. We can be sure that there are lots of perversions of, of, of commercial society which have yielded this. And 
uh, if we thought about commercial society in the way that Smith thinks of it, I think we could reasonably ask a question as to whether this, these outcomes would have occurred in the same way, because you would be dealing almost by definition with a, a, a more um, a, a embedded, trust-mediated, morally and socially attuned conception of what markets can do. There are parts of the world in which similar conceptions already exist like that. There's no reason why it should have been the default setting for international activity, if you like. Thank you. And then one more from, um, uh, from, from uh, Slido. Much of what you're arguing can be found in the works of sociologists and social theory. Do you agree that part of the problem of the inadequacy of current economic discourse stems from the disparaging of social theory and the detachment of ac academic economics from other social sciences? And I feel honour bound to put this somewhat critical question to of course. you and possibly we'll have responses from others. No, well, I, 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 I come up with a kind of mixed picture on this. I mean, I, I think it's really important not to underplay the achievements of economics as, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's very obvious, um, but it needs saying. And uh, uh, one can, I think, hold on to that, uh, uh, celebrate the enormous advances that have been made in the field over the last, you know, 200 years, and at the same time also say that there is, a, there is a latent critique of some of the foundations of economics and the way in which it's embedded, which might cause us to think that actually we can go further and do more in reflecting on, on its limitations and um, potential. And I think the other thing we can slightly do, and you do get this slightly in academic um, uh, economics and also in academic um, philosophy, uh, which is, you know, there's always a moment where someone will say something, there'll be pause, and someone will say, it's, it's, really, it's really sociology in disguise. In a rather <laughs> snooty, in a rather snooty way, and of course sometimes that's true, but of course one of the things that is interesting about—I mean, I do think that that um, Smith is, you know, a, an absolutely world-class, indeed foundational social psychologist. So, um, you know, it would be it would be, and if you if you think of those people as sociologists, then he is a sociologist to rank with, you know, Durkheim or you know any of the great nineteenth-century sociologists. So I'm I'm I don't want to suggest that somehow the prescinding of these two sets of ideas is in some sense a necessary fact, even if we happen to have, as it were, you know, taken each of them in different directions and, and, and been able to formalise economics in a way that we haven't yet quite with, 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 with some sociology or much sociology. Thank you very much. Um, would anyone like to comment or ask any questions? I think there was a question somewhere in that direction. I think it was your hand I saw before. Sorry, a bit of a walk. Thank you, George Moran uh, Namora. There are many lessons we can learn from Adam Smith, but are there things that you think he got wrong, and things which uh, you think we should uh, we should not take from him? Yes, thank you. So, so there are lacunae. I've touched on a couple already. Technology, uh, manufacturing. I don't think it's really theory of manufacturing particularly. Um, uh, uh, so, I think it's important to be aware of of, of those. Um, it's also, I think, worth just touching on, you know, there clearly are areas where we just ask ourselves the question, you know, I mean, the, clear, the most famous one obviously is the labour theory of value. You ask yourself the question, you know, Smith is a former labour theorist. D is that really how, I mean, he's actually running several different theories, I think. Um, he's kind of, they aren't quite settled in his mind. 
um, as to how they as to how they work. But he certainly does run a labour theory for a large chunk of the wealth of nations. And you know, I think you'd find a few people outside of Marxian view of the world who would would, would buy that today. Um, what's interesting though is even when he's wrong, you kind of you kind of see what he's on about. You know, he's trying to. It's like rather it's rather like the disparaging of services. He's trying to get at the at somehow the human benefit of making something. And the disbenefit of making something, of course, he also thinks that manufacturing leads to mental mutilation. So you know, he's, tr he's still, we're catching someone who's writing something in the, in the process of it's being thought. And therefore, there are gaps and there are things that we would certainly not accept now. But there are also kind of exciting conflicts and, 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 and I think, insights, which, you know, are kind of provocative, even if one doesn't agree with them. Um, so I, I, again, I mean, I, I have a very sympathetic reading, so I'm... You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be of that ilk. But that, I suppose that would be how I would think of it. Um, and of course, the other thing just to say is that uh, in my reading of Smith is much more evolutionary and more kind of Austrian than. So there's a tendency to read Smith as a kind of you know Arrow and Hahn, general equilibrium theorist, amour la lettre, and I think that's completely wrong. I just don't think that's. I mean, I can see why they've got to that view, kind of ideas of equilibrium markets and you know, the marginalist revolution, Vara and all that stuff. I just don't think that's an accurate way. I, he's much more open-ended. He's much more kind of, um, his, his ideas about language, it's, it's, you know, it's an unruly kind of, um, you know, it's a jostling view of human activity. And, and I think that's quite interesting, actually. Thank you. We have a question here and a question there, conveniently close to each other. <laughs> Thanks so much. Ben Tyler, No Organisation. Um, Adam Smith wrote a long time ago, the world of economics has changed in insanely since of course. then. What do you think Adam Smith would have thought about the way that we filter economic thought through so much mathematics today? <laughs> Wonderful question. So, so it, um, towards the end of his life, um, Smith develops a critique of what he calls the man of system. And the, the, the worry, and, and of course he was a quite a skilled mathematician, um, um, Smith. He was, he was uh, uh, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd been taught um, quite a lot of maths. One of the teachers in Glasgow was Colin McLaurin, who was one of the latter-day Newtonians. You know, there's a, there's, you know he's, he's no slouch um, in that area. And he's very critical about the idea that you can simply regard people in a geometrical way as, as kind of a pieces on a chessboard, give them their principles, and then kind of wind them up. And does that mean that he would, as it were, have rejected um, agent-based modeling or some of the stuff that we think about now as ways of characterizing consumer activity or, or um, market activity? Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure it does mean that, but I think, I, I think he'd be very interested to see it. But I think he'd, there'd be an enormous caveat in his mind as to what logical damage is being done by making these assumptions. And then the question would be what political or social damage is being done by um, the, a tendency to kind of fetishize um, science or things that are supposed to look like science. Now, that has a contemporary 
resonance, um, uh, uh, as you might might say. And the UK at the moment is split between people who think follow the science is simple simple common sense, and people who think follow the science is a ridiculously unscientific, uncaveated um, approach to what should be a kind of provisional exploratory idea. Um, That sense of science is one that Smith is, you know, the provisionality and the exploratory nature of of, of thinking is, is very much more in his style, I would say. Um, those are all um, very, <coughs> very fair points. Um, I mean, I think the aims of the aims of putting mathematics into economics has typically been to try and come up with a try and implement a view of how yes. people behave in mathematics rather than to dominate it. Um, so the question is, how best? What are the best possible ways of simplifying behaviour in order to put it into mathematics, rather than see the mathematics as being the the end in itself? Oh, I mean, you can do both, right? I mean, you can have brilliant mathematical insight and then think about how it could be applied. Yeah. You know, but but the, I mean, I, I remember very many years ago. This will make you laugh. In, I, I was a child, right? But in 1988, I was helping to organise a conference in Warsaw on the idea of praxeology, which is the kind of the theory of practice, uh, including in economics. And one of the speakers was Kenneth Boulding, sort of legendary figure in economics. And one of Ken Boulding's great lines was that mathematics brought rigor to economics. It also brought mortis. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. On that note, let's move on to what, what may be our final question. Oh, OK. But we had a good gentleman here who's got a question. Check, no, oh. And, 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 oh, and sorry, David. David, yeah. Brilliant. Let's, let's, yeah. Given the lessons that we learned from a uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine as well as a COVID pandemic, um, what's your view on Adam Smith's view on the trends or the controversy between uh, globalization and deglobalization, particularly on the supply chain <laughs> risks. I mean, I mean, jeepers creepers! What a, 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 a wonderfully all-embracing and scary question. Uh, 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 I mean, I think I think you know, the PhD thesis could be written on this topic. It's it's hard to come up with um, a simple uh, or a straightforward answer. Uh, I I do think that. Uh, just to t- just take the last 15 years in, in this country, one of the things that is very noticeable is how is the interaction between crisis and norms. So crisis now requires a, a, a massive collective intervention because the joined up nature of a globalized world, particularly heavily financialized world, makes it impossible to imagine the alternative. Uh, and so, you know, why we have the global banking crisis, global financial crisis in 2007 and 8. You know, why did it happen? Because, you know, the government was naive about the effect of build-ups of debt in the market. And the British banking system had been at 20 times equity, 20 times capital, for 40 years until 2007. It's at 50 times, gone from 20 times capital to 50 times capital in seven years. It's a catastrophic policy failure. No one's really explored that at all now. What was the effect? Well, it was a settled principle of British economic policy that GDP should never be more than 40% debt. Uh, Debt should never be more than 40% of GDP before 2007. 
to 98% now, 99% now. Okay. So you've got this ratchet, and then you have another ratchet in the pandemic. I don't think, I mean, I, you know, I've got to put my, I'll put my hand up. I was running the furlough scheme. The person who invented the furlough scheme is sitting over there. And I don't think that was a bad idea at all. I think, in fact, one of the reasons why we've just seen these ONS revisions that show that we bounced back was because of the effectiveness of that intervention. It wasn't perfect, but it was highly effective. But the whole package, not just that bit, that, the, the furlough scheme and the self-employed scheme were worth about, cost about 95 billion quid. Um, the whole package cost about 400 billion. That's, so, so it's that crisis from global interconnectedness leading us to massively increased debt, leading us to the outer reaches of what we would consider conventional monetary uh, uh, policy, abetted by a, the for, formation of social norms that make it incredibly difficult to come to collective social decisions to, to, to restrain spending or to... You know, I mean, there's, that, there's a very deep waters there. And I don't think we've really, as a, as a country, begun to come to terms with the, the, the implications of that. And, and I think, I don't, I don't blame any government, this government or the predecessor one, for that. I think that's just a change in the way in which the, the water flows around us. But we've got to get smart about it, and we're not getting smart about it at the moment. Very challenging times. David, um, it will be great to have some comments with you, from you as well, if you have any, as well as any questions you would like to pose. Well, thanks. I mean, I just wanted, as we're getting towards the end, first of all, to thank Jesse um, and just make three very quick uh, observations. I mean, first, Jesse referred to Adam Smith's unhappy experience at Oxford. And of course, I had to read and study very carefully Adam Smith's observations about universities in the Wealth of Nations. And he has a very powerful analysis that is ahead of anything that was subsequently written through the 19th century. His is essentially an analysis of monopoly power. Oxford and Cambridge spent a lot of time and effort suppressing the creation of other universities mm -hmm. and the pernicious effect of endowments and actually quite a strong argument for fees. And Jesse, of course, in the work that he is doing at Hereford with the creation of a new university, an innovative <laughs> new university, is, as in so many other respects, a true heir of Adam Smith. Um, I wanted, secondly, to congratulate Jesse on combining this fantastic piece of work with his career as a minister and a politician, and to report an exchange that I had with Robin Butler, then the cabinet secretary, when I tried to clear a text that I was writing, a <laughs> thing on conservatism, with him as cabinet secretary. There are very strict rules on what you can write when you're a minister. So I had to go and ask Robin Butler permission to produce this book. And he looked at me and he said, hmm, David, he said, it's very simple. He said, you want to write a book on conservatism? You're only allowed to write a book if it is either a work of philosophy or a work of fiction. I leave you to decide which it is. Um, but I think with Jesse, we have undoubtedly got a work of philosophy. And then finally, just a, if he has time to comment on this, I did once, as a young enthusiast, working for Margaret Thatcher, say, of course, we're trying to do laissez-faire. <laughs> and she immediately bridled. She did not like the expression laissez-faire. 
And she looked at me and said, no, David, no, not laissez-faire, ordered liberty. And I never quite knew if it was she just disproved of it because it was French, or whether she was <laughs> making a deep point about true conservatism. And I'd be interested to know whether Jesse thinks that perhaps what the Conservative Party has been up to for the last part 30 years passes that test or not. But thank you very much, Jesse, and thank you also to the Society of Professional Economists for hosting this event. Um, well, David, what a fantastic um, troika to respond to. Uh, I, of course, the genius, one of the many aspects of Margaret Thatcher's genius was you never quite know how much she's read and how much she's read. There's that apocryphal story of her kind of um, visiting the Conservative Research Department and seeing something she didn't like and then whipping out a copy of Hayek's Constitution of Liberty and thrusting it down on the table saying, this is what we believe. And, of course, ordered liberty does sound rather more Hayekian than it does um, Smithian. Um, but I don't think she's... I, don't think she, I think she's onto something, if you see what I mean, and as I think Hayek was. And, and uh, in, in some respects, uh, of course, it's impossible not to make a very contemporary point, which is the benefits of ordered liberty, I think, can be best understood in the idea... or one of the benefits is the idea of an affordance something that society gives you just by its existence, which you never asked for, but it just allows you a kind of... And it's not necessarily a positive freedom. It's not something anyone's paid for. It's just a, a potential. Um, we've just been through a pandemic with lockdown. I would have said we've got a better understanding now of the affordances of society than we probably any previous society since the Second World War. And when you wear a mask, of course, it's, an, it's not a way of protecting yourself. It's, it's an affordance to other people. So we kind of understand that idea more in ordered liberty, perhaps. And of course, it's a Burkean idea that liberty itself should be the product of an ordered society, which is a trust we, we need to preserve. Um, so she's, she's on to something very important. On the Robin Butler book story, it's terribly funny. I remember clearing this book, having to go and clear this book. Now I'm afraid all order has gone by the board. And I did not clear my latest book, which is a historical novel called The Winding Stair, available in all good bookshops. Um, absurdly inexpensive price. Um, I, didn't, I didn't, that was of course fictional, although actually it's almost 90, 98% true. Um, uh, uh, um, with, I didn't clear that with anyone. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't invited to. I think it was pretty clearly understood I was writing it. No one asked me to. Um, but I did think it was important and I did go and clear my book on Adam Smith with Sue Gray. Who was at the time, um, you may recall, before her recent um, move, she was running the propriety and ethics part of the number 10 operation. So I went to see Sue and I said, Sue, uh, she said, I understand you've got a book. I said, yeah. She said, does it name any of our agents in the field? <laughs> I said, no. Does it reveal the content of any official secrets? No. Is it disobliging about any of our allies? It's a book about an 18th century political economist. <laughs> Get out of here. Anyway, so, so I'm pleased to say I managed to pass her three tests. Um, uh, and then on, on universities, of course, uh, it, it, was the, it, was, it was the fact that the students paid fees that created the possibility of a challenge, an, organiza you know, an organization that was not an endowed foundation but could come into being to challenge the endowed foundations. This is, what, this is the great genius of Glasgow. Of course, Glasgow was a so-called new light um, 
Presbyterian institution, you know, they, they, were, they were fired up with a, an, not just an intellectual obligation and desire for improvement, but also a, a kind of moral and religious obligation. And students paid fees. And when Smith accepted the sinecure, well, it wasn't the sinecure, but he agreed to go and work for the Duke of Buccleuch and to uh, accompany the Duke of Buccleuch's son on the great tour, he attempted to return his fees, the, the, what remained of the fees, to his students. And, and the students said, no, don't, we're absolutely fine. And he then started thrusting the money into their pockets. He was so kind of absurd, worried about it. But it is, it is fun to speculate on the fact that it was the contrast between Glasgow and Balliol College, Oxford, that caused Smith's abiding belief in student fees. And therefore, in some sense, Balliol is the intellectual home of student fees. <laughs> Which may come as a provocation too far. Um, the final point I would make, yes, I, I am trying to set up a university in, in Hereford. It's a specialist STEM institution. Um, I'm very pleased to say that its latest intake has, is rocketing upwards. Um, which isn't bad for an institution that's never been heard of in place, never was heard of doing a degree, no one's ever heard of for an economic outcome, never was heard of. It's called the New Model Institute of Technology and Engineering. And let me tell you a story that perfectly illustrates uh, higher education in this country. In the year 1334, the Diocese of Lincoln, which is the largest diocese in England, bigger than the Diocese of Canterbury, uh, decided to set up a new, wanted to set up a new university in Stamford, in Lincolnshire. And... Oxford and Cambridge, which had been, Cambridge had been formed as a reaction to Oxford, they were at each other's throats. And Oxford and Cambridge learnt about this and buried their historic rivalries in order to make a joint petition to Edward III to kill the new university in Lincolnshire. Nothing has changed in higher education. Um, what good has happened has largely changed as a result of um, Lord Willits in the corner and the changes that he and Joe Johnson put through. But in terms of the behaviour of the market actors, believe me, nothing like enough has changed. But we're trying to put an end to some of that now. Anyway, that's just a final response to all those three marvellous challenges you put out there, David. <laughs> and thank you. And thank you all for having me along. Thank you for your fabulous questions. Thank you to all those on Slido for your questions. And thank you, Amanda, for being such a brilliant host and a fabulous colleague. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, absolutely fascinating, filled with humour and insight as well as, as, well as deep thought. Um, and I'm sure we will all go away with, uh, with a, a deeper understanding both of what Adam Smith has done and how it relates to current age. And we also understand where to go if we want A, to uh, learn more about Adam Smith and B, to read an engaging uh, historical fictional <laughs> novel with a large element of truth. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.